This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. Otago Access Radio, in partnership with Otago Polytech, brings you Blowing Bubbles. Blowing Bubbles brings you positive conversations with people in their bubbles around the world. How are people living their bubble lives? Working from home, keeping kids entertained, and staying connected and getting exercise. And how are these things presenting us with the opportunities to find new ways of living? Every weekday, the Sustainable Lens team of Samuel Mann, Shan Gallagher and Mara Karatai reach out from their bubbles to chat with interesting and positive people around the world. Broadcast on Otago Access Radio 105.4 FM and streamed and podcast on oar.org.nz and sustainablelens.org. Bringing connection, joy, kindness and peace in the days ahead. Welcome to Blowing Bubbles, positive conversations with people in their safe spaces, their bubbles around the world. I'm Samuel Mann, I'm not at Sawyer's Bay, I'm in central Dunedin at Otago Polytechnic and I'm joined in Fakatani by Mawera Karatai. Kia ora Mawera. Morena Sam, how's it going? Very well. Now I didn't manage to speak to you yesterday, how did Wellington go? It was amazing. Um, it was just, it, it was the most extraordinary day to stand on the steps of Parliament. And I remember one of the reporters that was there was saying to me that you get choices in life to be on one side of history or the other, and you have to determine which is the right side. And we got to be on the right side of history, and we got to carry a kitty with um, 12,500 names in it along that journey with us. It was a, it was an extraordinary time. I'm, and I'm really stoked that Jack got to be part of that as well. And he got a tour of Parliament? Um, well, not really. We did. We just sort of wandered around. We went into the uh, Māori Affairs Select Committee room with Tamati, um, who's our... We, Tamati's our very good friend. We've interviewed him on the show here. He was the, the formerly the um, electorate MP for Waiareke, but now he's on the list. But he's also had also the chair of the Māori Affairs Select Committee. So we went and um, had some time with him and had some kai in that room. And him and Jack had a beatboxing competition. <laughs> <laughs> that was kind of cool that, you know, Tabati takes time to have a beatboxing competition with his, his number one 11-year-old fan in the world. <laughs> so, And who are you introducing today? Today it is my very great pleasure to introduce Adrian. Adrian and I started the Doctorate of Professional Practice together uh, and he has just submitted his, um, which is just extraordinary. What an amazing achievement and I'm excited to hear how the process has been for him and, and how he's feeling about the work now that it's done. Uh, and uh, especially, uh, you know, I have a real interest in it because it's part of my whakapapa as well. So, um, but yeah, what an extraordinary achievement, Adrian, and thanks for sharing with us today. Thanks for inviting me. That's wonderful. Thank you, Adrian. How was your bubble life? Um, bubble life was interesting. Uh, my mother-in-law sold her house in late January and had to move out obviously because she was looking for a new place and she moved in with us so we had bubble time uh, with uh, my mother-in-law and I haven't had bubble time with my mother-in-law since I was about 22 when I met my wife and we sort of lived with her so um, yeah interesting yeah but I, I locked myself in my office and just did my study and ventured out at night it was the beginning of a period where I was, I was I'd taken some time off work to manage to get this work you know this doctorate done and um I just treated it like life goes on, which was stuck in a room writing. (laughs) (laughs) It was no different. (laughs) Just couldn't go to the supermarket when I wanted something. (laughs) And it must have worked because you've submitted it. Yes, it it did work. It was was pretty disciplined um, effort in all all honesty. And um, I just needed time to sit down and... um, put you know figuratively pen to paper and, and and you know all the thinking was there it just needed the quality time to to write um, and I think anyone who gets into the space will tell you that at some point you need quality time um, it's not it's not that you cognitively you can't do it it's just time to put it down <laughs> simple as that Let's go straight to the first of your music choices. Let's mm. have you two the fly. Why this one? Ah, uh, this is a gr- this is a 
I like the idea of um, going beyond the known. And um, if any of you know the work of U2, you'll know the Joshua True is a hugely successful album of theirs. It was a, an album that made them world famous. And the thing is, as a band, they'd worked for 10 years to get to the point of creating that album and that success that they desired. Um, however, they realised that with that success came a level of um, comfort, creative comfort, and that particular sound that they had, which everyone loved, they knew, well, you know, you, you can't continue to be in a space of comfort. So they intentionally removed themselves into an uncomfortable space physically. They went to Berlin, same place where Bowie went, and they reinvented themselves. And the sound that comes out of the song is completely different to all their other work. But this was the lead single of their album, Aktong Baby. And on top of that, the album went on to become, um, you know, critically acclaimed and, and took them into new space. So the song represents moving from places of comfort into the unknown to, to break new ground and to um, new creative space. <laughs>
you think that the pandemic will see in hindsight as a as an uncomfortable place that has led to creativity? Well, I think we all know that some people will just always go back to the known. There's security in the known um, and comfort and all those types of things. But I think for those who are curiously minded, they're more than likely going to see this as an opportunity. So some will see it as a... Um, uh, an inconvenience to life and some will see it as an opportunity I already know you know I'm involved in the world of food there's there are people who see it as an opportunity and people who who simply see it as it's the end of the world so I guess it really just brings forth mindsets about how people see the world um, and and how they function within it so um, I, I, I kind of liked it. <laughs> I like the disruption. As, as strange as it sounds, I don't get to see my sister in Australia like I'd like to, but I do like the, the disruption that comes with it. It forces us to be thinking in new ways and behaving in new ways, and, and, and I like that. The world mm. of food mm. has to carry on because we need to eat, mm. but the world of food mm. was severely disrupted. Yes, yeah, exactly. I mean... Um, it's interesting, um, you know, the first sort of narrative that came out from like the government and everyone was around the demise of hospitality and tourism in New Zealand, and don't get me wrong, tourism is hurting, um, you know, because we don't have as high dollar tourists coming in. However, um, if you look on SEEK currently, um, the report that came out the other day, top 20 jobs in demand, um, number one was barista, and in the top 20 were basically chef's jobs in various forms. The demand is huge. We, we, we do not have enough people. So um, if you work in hospitality, there's not, it's not a shortage of jobs. Um, so that's sort of, that's been counter. Um, however, what it has forced is the online world has become much more mobilised. We're seeing um, people diversifying their offerings into new and new spaces. I was talking to a local restaurateur the other day about a really super interesting idea about, you know, he was talking, I think he's trying to build this platform, but imagine going to a restaurant and rethinking what that experience was. And he was saying, let's just say, before you even get to the restaurant, you start getting seen, you know, imagery and videos around the type of, uh, relationships that this restaurant have has with certain um, growers and producers, and um, so you've already got a connection with with the products that you are going to engage with before you even get there. Um, and then you go, you 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 sit there and you have this meal, and they're telling you, know, oh, well, the fish comes from these guys, and you know, gravity down Stuart Island, and they, you know, they do sustainable harvesting and all these kinds of things, um, and then. Um, and, a re- and he was talking about a restaurant's a perfect opportunity to, to capture somebody for a sale because if, if they've had a couple of drinks in them and they're having a good time, they're in a really vulnerable state. It's a, it's a bit like you know funeral directors, you know, they catch you in the most vulnerable state of your life. Um, and and he said, you know, like and before you go, if you want, you can um, you can have um, you know a fresh fish. You can order and pay for a fresh fish to be delivered, you know, next Thursday to your home with some of the sources from the restaurant. And building an online platform that allows all of those types of new experiences to happen. So it's rethinking the business model of restaurants and how you, what is your purpose? But because if you spend all this time building relationships with suppliers, you know, how does the supplier and yourself also capitalise on that in a new way? And I thought this is a great idea. Yeah, we, 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 this is the new opportunities that come about. So yeah, it's. Um, you sent me to talk to someone in Christchurch that's got that kind of place. I can't remember the guy's name. Uh, oh, Alex Davies. Yes. Yes. Yeah, he's really pushing uh, the boat in terms of sustainable practice and beyond. You know, uh, restaurants are like a lot of businesses; they're greenwashed out the front it's sustainable <laughs> you know the egg is free range and you know the chicken might be organic or something the back the back end it's um it, it can be like forced labor and so there's a real ethical dilemma here and but um alex davies he's he's definitely somebody who's he's looking at the whole of the business and the relationships and 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 where he won't make compromise on a decision around food um and just because it looks good out front it's really got to follow right through that whole that chain you know the supply chain um so yeah there are great people out there doing awesome things you mm. talk about the the food and mm. and the labor mm. is it possible to to do it in a to, to run hospitality or in a mm. full food in a in a 
you know, mm. holistically ethical manner? Um, well, it's something we we need to move to, move towards. Um, hospitality, you know, has its roots in a, a Serbian culture. You know, it really comes out of um, European cultural life ways in the sense that um, you know the early chefs and that were in these big houses in France and they were the servants to the rich and then they had a whole entourage and so so the labour was always if we think about um, from a design perspective it's there's a model called human centred so there's what what do people desire and there's a feasibility and viability thing it's like it's like we figured out what people desire yeah, we can give them awesome things, but we don't really care about whether it's feasible or viable. <laughs> it's it's like so, and now we're having to think about mm, is this feasible and viable because it's not really good on people's mental health and lifestyle and all those types of things. So, I always advocate for a design approach to thinking about the world of food. So, um, yes, we are, and look, I'm I'm hoping, um, and in some ways, we've had a band aid solution in New Zealand in the sense that our solution to our hospitality problems is to import cheap labour. Um, from overseas who will put up with not so good money and um, not so good conditions um, that does not fix the problem that is not sustainable um, yes I understand you know, I mean that's it's, it's, it's an outsourcing solution um, we need to build a model that uh, enables you know us you know I'm not saying you know not to bring in foreign workers but I'm, what I'm saying is how do we attract and retain our own people um, to tell our own food stories? We need to be, you know, we need to be telling our own food stories. There are our, our stories to tell. Um, yeah, it's a wicked problem. What are our mm. own food stories? You, you mean mm. the whole journey of where the foods come from, but also the some sort of hidden messages in it? Um, well, in the, in the sense that. Um, New Zealand, they always say, oh, well, what's the New Zealand cuisine? And I, and I hate, you, you can't put this generic, oh, this is what New Zealand cuisine looks like. There's lots of just, there's different stories in New Zealand. And of course, those stories are, are, are for all of us, are stories of people who've travelled primarily on boats or planes to get here. You know, even early Marty got here on a <laughs> walker. So we each have unique stories. Um, and I think there's this diversity, uh, you know about our relationship with um, our culture and our place, and then how that's community. I mean, food's just a medium to do that. So, you know, wherever you go, it should be that that authentic story. And um, you know, even as simple as um, I always look at Kimia Sate. It's a it's a little um, Cambodian restaurant in Dunedin. It's actually it's gone around the country as a franchise, and it's like I mean, that's actually a story of. It's actually when you really sit down and you go, oh, satay, we all eat satay now, but there's once upon a time we didn't eat satay. It was weird. It was strange. But that's the story of people who were dislocated um, and displaced from, from Cambodia, from a war, from and who fled and hope and are now here and part of our community. And that's a great story, you know, um, and how they've fused their worlds with, with their cuisine, with our world, and now we have a satay burger. That's how it's come about. <laughs> I, I love those things, and I think just you know owning those stories, telling those stories, and, and there's lots of different stories, you know, from the indigenous story right through to stories of migration and or contemporary migration. We're seeing mm. lots of recognition of I don't know what to generic call mm. it, but the wild food space. In fact, yeah. Wera is the wild food cook. She certainly is. <laughs> um, and I, you know, it's just probably to do with our relationship with the whenua and being in that out there and connected to it and you know that was certainly a big part of my upbringing as a, as a young boy being out there you know we just I don't know just maybe we parents didn't like us watching tally or we didn't get many toys it was as simple as that as you got a fishing rod so um and I, I just hope we we can manage to continue that story I mean you know young people get a hard time about oh it was on their phone but um I think they still get out there. <laughs> I, I've been thinking a lot about how it must be to come from another country where you're used to having all of your cultural food norms and food sources and then coming here where we're quite isolated and, and actually really limited. We don't realise how limited we are in the food that we have available. And then how, how people have to adapt um, the way that they like to eat their traditional food to what's available here, but also their whole cultural practice around food, because we're quite different here, and we don't know that. 
Yeah. It'd be interesting to do some research around that to to actually have a look at the way that families have to adapt um, to to living in New Zealand. Yeah, it, it is. It certainly is an interesting space, and I guess that's kind of always comes back to my philosophy: is that's how these new identities or cuisines, you know, cultural cuisines emerge. You know, Cajun is a great example of that. You know, when French influence and all of a sudden and different spices and that um, you you get Cajun cuisine and <clears throat> but you're right it's it's actually the um, what sits behind it is you know in Māori we call it you know tikaka uh, or tikanga as uh, out north and like the cultural practices around things which are interesting you know we're going into Christmas and some families are still going to have plum pudding and a glazed ham on the table and it could be 20 plus degrees outside like far out you know but um yeah, those how you retain those those cultural practices. I think that's how people retain their identity. Never mind if all of a sudden we can't get these ingredients. We just we work with what we can, which is which is a lovely thing. Um, and yeah, yeah, people adapt. They they adapt, and I like the way that um, in their adapting, they have to almost share to be able to gather resources, and in the sharing, then some of those cultural practices become incorporated into just the wider society like you know loads of families now um, will celebrate Cinco de Mayo which is a Mexican tradition that Americans have brought here and, and now loads of Kiwi families are participating in that too which is just all about the food and uh, I, I love that, I think it's really neat Yeah I was invited to Thanksgiving, um, friends of mine Americans, um, when week or so ago and um, they had some other American friends and it was just really interesting listening to them as Americans talking about their different regions of America or areas and the different um, approaches to cooking turkey and stuff and it was like uh, and I've never really thought of it America is this great place of cuisine um, but but they do they have they have quite serious traditions about how things are done and it was just so neat listening to them because they were rem- you know reminiscing about growing up their mums and dads and this is what we always did and um, it's it's it is it, it's such a, it is the thing that forms our well it's one of the things that forms our identity isn't it it's so important oh. and they eat kumra as a sweet dish so weird yeah, I had that with pecan crumble. Yeah, that was weird. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But then and I was uh, had some people from England staying with me and I served roast pumpkin and they're like, why are you serving us cow food? <laughs> um, because it's a beautiful vegetable and we love yeah. it. Well, we give yeah. that to cows. Yeah, followed by the Swede. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Bubble Sprite of the Forest of Orokadui, Dunedin's favourite goddess, Tahu Mackenzie. Kia ora koutou, nā mihi aroha nui, kia koutou, ko tahua hau. I hope you're all having this day, beautiful superstar, your beloved universes. And I really hope that wherever you are and whatever's happening around this journey that we're all on to get is proven very rewarding, very sustained and illuminated for you more and more each day. Who you are, the triumph of nature's art, perfect. Yeah, mahita. Thank you. So I've been having a wonderful time and as we all know this year has been so up and down for all of us. Real series of revelations, powerful transformations. As we've moved through all these different lockdown levels we've had the opportunity of course to be at home with our whanau and our, our loved ones, our friends at home with ourselves, at home with our companions the more than world. We've had the opportunity to tune into our home and really that opportunity to go within and reconnect with ourselves. So it's been such a powerful year and I really hope for all of you it's been really helpful. As we all know, my partner of many years, Harvey Penfold, headed away up north, is following his own soul journey, which I totally respect. And it's been a great opportunity for me as well to do my own inner work, and that has its own up and downs. But I've been very lucky this week that I've had great support from my team, including the amazing Leslie, wife and Sam, up at Orokunui. I've been able to have time at home doing my self-nurturing, really having a bit of time to rest, recuperate and cover. And it's been amazing the difference that it's made. So I hope that you all, as we come to the end of very busy and having some time for you, care for you. And that's why, of course, the more we look after ourselves, the better we care for those around so I've been really enjoying this time, of course, to my routines, just a bit of time to give them, time with the hay hat, and I feed them in the morning. 
Poirot and Hayes are beautifying, adorned the woman, tidying form, rearranged space flows better. And it's been really loving having time to connect and appreciate and present those around me. I know often when we get really busy, it's hard for our conscious to be in the mind with the people that are around us, but the more we practice present, the more we actually gain from our experience, the more they recharge us, sustain and nourish strength. So it's been wonderful to return to that knowing, and sometimes it is necessary to have a wee bit of time just to return to all of those knowing of who we are and what we need what we're here to share and give. So I've loved going back to, of course, the beloved Bar Base, the second healing epicenter in my life, aside from my home, ordinary eco. I've just really been loving noticing all the shifts that have taken place, that are taking place in the community of care at Bar Base. As new, beautiful people arrive, but all of lovely, lovely friends of mine who I've encouraged to join up. It's just wonderful to see them blossoming and growing. And we have a new teacher, Anna, who come on board. It's really cool. So I've got Rosa, who runs Bar Base, and Anna lots of flowers today. And of course, I was thinking about how all of us, we really help each other to bloom and blossom. And we're always helping each other to bloom and blossom, whether we're conscious of it or not. And we do that by sharing, sharing who we are. The people around us can take what helps them from us, the way that we are, and they can add it to their kitty, add it to their way of being. And I just love seeing these shifts taking place as people grow and unfurl and evolve, and we're all co-evolving in this infinite web of life. And of course, it's not only our our human whānau that's influencing us, helping us, but it's also all of our relation, the more than human world, influencing us, helping us here. There's flowers everywhere, blooming and blossoming, so it's real time of unfurling, turning towards the sun, turning towards the light, and growing, 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 so it's such a beautiful to be alive. Supremely grateful, here we are, that we're free in this time. So I really hope for you, whatever's happening around you, you can take the time for yourself to really appreciate where you're at, Give yourself time to process the taking place. Give some love to your home if you can. And I really hope you see that beautiful, beautiful, positive impact you are making this world every day. How the people around you are blossoming thanks to your light. And I look forward to talking to you tonight. You're listening to Blowing Bubbles. We're talking with Adrian Woodhouse, who has just submitted his Doctorate of Professional Practice, the first one to do that. Congratulations. Thanks. That's um. <laughs> I know you're relieved, but I'm I'm even more relieved, <laughs> to be honest. What's it on? Yeah. Uh, it's pretty complex, but in essence, it's um, around cultural identity, colonisation, and a particular look at um, southern southern Māori. Um, and um, for us down south here in Kaitahu, um, we've got a long history of colonisation that, that occurred. And when I started getting into this space of looking at how, um, I'll just premise that by saying I, I am Kaitahu and I do whakapapa to Rakiora, Stuart Island, as some may know it. Um, when I started looking into it, I was I could see the themes of and patterns of what happens you know, 160 odd years ago to Māori and how they were still happening today in my uh, professional practice, so in my in the, in the institution of haute cuisine, which is fine dining, and also in an education, I could see actually it's still the same. And we're actually, as, as southern Māori people who have been colonised, some of us are quite far from the, the fires of identity, you could say, and so. But I realised that um, we had been trapped in a system and we were part of a system that was perpetuating, keeping us away from our uh, disconnected or culturally dislocated from our from our identity, um, Indigenous identity. So that that's kind of the big stuff. And, yeah, as you know with these things, there's lots of little stuff in it as well. <laughs> <laughs> mm. You did it yeah. as a professional practice? Correct. Doctorate? Correct. How, uh, did it, how did it end up looking different from what the same thing might have looked like as a PhD? As a PhD. PhD. Yeah. Um, it's interesting. I've thought about this question a lot um, because I completed my doctorate in a space called Kopapa Māori. Okay, so it uses Māori ways of knowing. One of the things about Kopapa Māori is that. Uh, there's kind of, I don't want to say tests, but there's things that you can run your work through to kind of say, hey, is this looking like it should be in this space? And one of the key tests is this idea of um, praxis. But the idea that 
something can't just be theoretical it's got to have an applied nature to it if your work isn't applied and, and your work can't get to the people then it's 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 you know has no relevance and I sort of thought to myself well you know sometimes with a PhD it can be creating new theories new, you know and it can be very theoretical it's creating knowledge you know as for the discipline as opposed to something for the practice so um, there's a, some reflective frameworks that I've created within that which are, um, hopefully will be useful to people although certainly useful to me um, but as it's actually a book so but as a book that works as a tool of decolonization so working through it people um, can kind of figure out, oh god gee that sounds a bit familiar yeah that resonates with me so that's in that sense it works as a tool what does decolonization mean for you in practice uh, whew, that's that's fairly easy um, because I teach in um, a world of food and I teach in uh, you could broadly define it as the old world of hospitality or the school the school of hospitality so that's very that's all comes out of a very eurocentric very what they call francophile very french dominated ideology practice framework so it doesn't take much to decolonize that space <laughs> it's so rigid it's so you know the language is french the the the, the hierarchical structures is is, is is french the you know it's i think the, the uniform just symbolizes everything about what it is i mean i don't know if you know it but there's actually codes in the symbol in the uniform so the length of hat and apron denotes hierarchy and and who can say what and and it, and it, it controls um the opposite to maori although we have different structures as well but yeah so if I was to characterise it as removing the Gordon Ramsay? Uh, yeah, he'd, he'd epitomise it, although, I mean, yeah. He's a funny funny person in the sense that he, he's really benefited. I, I, I really despise Gordon because he's benefited financially from um, sort of perpetuating attitudes about our profession, about angry and violence, and that's not always the case, um, and he's financially benefited from that. He just plays on that. And then yeah, do you think he's hamming it up? Uh, oh no! In the early days, he was. He's a documentary boiling point. If you want to go watch it, it's on YouTube. It's scary, and he was. But I, I find it weird that he'll have the angry Gordon, and next minute he's like the caring Gordon who wants to help turn around a family business, and you need to work together. Players, and it's like, who are you, man? <laughs> so, boom, boom, boom. Why this one? Well, that's a dedication. Um, I think. I'd really finished my doctorate in early August or late August, um, and then beginning of October, my my father died, and this was um, a song that he listened to all the time, and I dedicated my work to him. He was he featured heavily in my in my work, um, and yeah, it's literally just a tribute to him. He used to sit outside and he'd listen to the blues and John Lee Hooker's pretty classic when it comes to this kind of stuff, and um, yeah, it's a tribute. Boom, 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 boom I'm gonna shoot you right down Right off of your feet Take you home with me Put you in my house See you walk up and down the floor. When you're talking to me, that baby talk. I just like it like that. When you talk like that, you knocks me out. Right off of my feet. How, 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 how.
she walked and walked and talked and talked and whisper in my ear and tell me that she loved me. I love that talk, that baby talk. But when she talk like that, she knocks me dead right off of my feet. Edwin, we've seen lots of societal changes over the last few months, nearly a year. What do you think will stick and what do you hope will stick? Um, well, I think one of the key things that, that came out of lockdown was the sense of community. And everyone spoke about the sense of community, getting to know your neighbours. Um, and I guess part of that is this, this back to this this thing of kindness and caring. And, you know, Jacinda always talks about kindness and, you know, trying to care for others and that. And, and I think... There was something, you know, something sort of in society. It was sitting there, but I think it was like the COVID ignited this sense of wanting community and caring for others. And, and um, you know, I have a relationship with people in my community now that I, that I wouldn't have had with COVID. Just life was busy. Life was crazy, actually. <laughs> and all of a sudden, COVID just forced us to stop and breathe and talk to people who you wouldn't normally talk to and it was lovely and it was and I and I see that continuing um, the year what a gift COVID gave us what lessons do you think we can take from that for the bigger perhaps mm. longer term challenges we face mm. climate change yeah. biodiversity social inequity mm. can, can we take stuff from that yeah, well, I, I think I think we can. I think um, it was really interesting in the sense that um, all of a sudden money didn't have the power it used to have. <laughs> Everyone was sitting at home, you know, there's only so much you can buy from the supermarket and there's only so many things you can buy online. So all of a sudden um, starting to think about well, what is this money thing? What role does it play in society? What other responsibilities do we have in society? How do we think about that? And one of the things that um, that I did in my community with my daughter is we run a small bakery. Well, she runs a small bakery every now and then. And we did a weekly, um, it was probably illegal, <laughs> bread bakery and delivery um, and so we were just asked we had a Facebook group and we'd ask the whole community okay you know who who wants hot bread on Saturday morning and people would you know we'd be like 25 people yeah 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 and so we'd bake this bread and then social distancing my wife would deliver it and then for Easter we baked Easter boxes now the joy the pleasure that comes out of that you can't buy that with money you can't buy that pleasure and I think all of a sudden starting for us to rethink about um, you know how do we extract joy and pleasure or develop or construct joy and pleasure in our lives it started for me it started you know asking those those questions and don't get me wrong here we've got big bigger bigger questions about our climate and how we work more sustainable and then part of that is just um, stop clicking and ordering stuff online from overseas. <laughs> Adrian, you, you teach young people and uh, I'm writing a lot about imagination at the moment and, and the more people I speak to, the more people are alarmed by the absence of imagination um, or employable imagination. And you, you're in an industry and you're teaching in an industry where that is just so important. If you can't visualise the outcome, then how do you know where you're going with the kai, with mm -hmm. everything? Are you seeing that? in the people that you're teaching? Um, Are you seeing the absence? Is it something you're recognising in the in your teaching practice, the absence of imagination in the young people? I think imagination, well, imagination exists. There's, there's no doubt about it. 
what 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 also exists is a, a fear of not conforming a fear of um, um, if I conform I will get a grade or a certain reward um, and so it's breaking down those um, previous sort of constructs self constructs that they've they've come that they've well it's not not that they've constructed they've been part of a schooling system all kinds of things which that allow you to conform you know I mean all three of us are great fans of well-beings. We we know his opinion on this, and I hold his opinion on this. We need to we need to foster this. We need to nurture this. Um, D, you know, the number eight wire mentality is not a, a cultural gift. It has to be nurtured, and it has to be looked after. Um, and you know, for us, sometimes it just takes a whole three years just to un, unlock. Or it's almost like therapy at times. It's like you know, you you have permission to do this. You know, um, and it's hard because our discipline as well is so structured and regimented at times. So it's a juxtaposition between these things. Um, but you are in a. It is mm. food design, isn't it? It's not cooking. Yeah. It's, yes, it's, it's an important distinction, perhaps. It is. A, it's totally an important distinction, and and and, and it's innovation, and creativity is the only thing that's going to get us out of a COVID situation. Conforming to the past is not going to get you out of this this problem, um, or this opportunity, as we would say. Um, and so now, ever than before, it's it's critical. Um, and of course, let, you know, we're thinking. You know, we've got a vaccine. A vaccine apparently is arriving. Hey, we may be getting some international tourists at some point, um, shortly ish, roughly. <laughs> Not putting any dates on anything, but um, you know, well, what kind of what kind of tourists do do we want here? How do we reset a really damaged? tourism sector and a damaged hospitality sector we're not going to do it by conforming to the known we need to reimagine how we do this so um, I think imagination is about um, is about more about an environment than anything else you know how we create those environments an environment which fosters, fosters imagination it, yeah. and allows it to have yeah. impact yeah it, without question It's all. I think it's all about environment which is culture and the people within it and yeah, because it just exists. It does exist. We all go to sleep and have a dream every now and then. <laughs> so I have some questions to end the show with. What is the biggest success you've had in the last couple of years? Oh, far out. Um, biggest success? Well, I, I think, um, to be honest... Success or significant moment or events or stuff. I think undertaking my doctorate um, and answering questions about why I felt dislocated to my culture, why why I couldn't speak the language or limited understanding of tikanga and um, kawa. and then actually answering those questions and figuring it out and realizing that somebody just didn't just wake up one day and say you know I just don't want to be a Māori anymore I'm just not going to play that game a whole lot of other things actually happened and figuring out that narrative and how it came about and then looking in my classroom and seeing these little white faced people who have an M next to them on the register because they're Māori and going and, and then when I say oh there's you know there's a Naitahu scholarship and they're like I don't want anything to do with that figuring out in my mind why that situation has occurred that's probably been for me the most significant th- thing in the last three years so we're writing a book of these conversations it's called tomorrow's heroes nice it's our team of people doing good work mm. so you are in our team what's the superpower that's got you into the mansion superpower that's got into your mansion yeah or before them yeah your superpower oh, wow. the one you have not one you might dream of not letting you have laser eyes. No, no, no. Um, I, th- I think I've got like super special ears for listening. <laughs> no, because I think um, too many people are wanting just to talk about, uh, you know, all their thoughts and ideas. I, I just love listening and processing. I'm a deep incubator, you know. I often don't say a lot at a meeting. I'll come back, I'll process it, I'll make sense of it, and then the next day I want to put my thoughts forward that is such a superpower <laughs> <It's now. laughs> do you consider yourself to be an activist uh, yeah 
Yes, probably more on the peaceful side of things. <laughs> so what motivates you? To be an activist? No, to oh. get out of bed in the morning. Oh, just honestly seeing the world a little bit better. And, and just when you're younger, you think you can change the world and you need that. And then you realise you, maybe just a little bit that you can change. And then uh, if you can change the world of just maybe one other, then that's okay. It takes a wee while to get to that point. Yeah. But I love the enthusiasm of youth. I, I love these young people who think they can change the world and they get out of the full of this bravado. I love it. It's brilliant. And then they, you know, reality kicks in. They get married. They have kids. They have a mortgage. So <laughs> the placard goes down, and a new form of activism comes up. It's great. It's neat. So, what challenge are you looking forward to in the next year or so? Um, uh, the, the key, the key challenges is like, like I said, you know, my school has, well, not my school, my discipline, you know, is is um, really premised on quite. Eurocentric views of the world, and the Rove is presenting us with fantastic opportunities to to have discussions about how we um, rethink our education. So, you know, I'm not so keen on this whole siloed on campus and at work. I, I actually one of the few things I, I I do like in Rove is this idea that work and study should be uh, this fluid thing. Uh, you know, in terms of where it occurs, um, I like that. I think it's great. Um, I see the benefit of both. Uh, so I think that's the opportunity. And lastly, do you have any advice for our listeners? Any advice for your listeners? Um, don't take things too seriously, honestly. Um, tomorrow is another day. We can get pretty bogged down and stuff. And um, yeah, life's for a living. Thank you for that, Moira. Adrian, I think it's a beautiful thing. You've done a real legacy project, uh, your DPP work, um, establishing knowledge, uh, making sure that old knowledge is accessible, giving a new lens. Uh, mm. And um, I hope that many young people get to read it and that it gives them a sense of who they are and where they've come mm. from and some sense also of where they can go. And thank you for what you've done and for the commitment that you've made for teaching all these years and for making the world a more beautiful place through Kai and um, and just your general goodness. Kia ora. Kia ora. Thank you. Now, we're going to try to go out to Sid Vicious, <laughs> do it singing my way. There might have to be some editing along the way. But you had a story about why this one too. Oh, I mean, he's, he's such a misunderstood person, Sid. But um, I really kind of enjoy... Uh, what the punk movement stood well, stands for still stands for uh, it's um it's it's for the common person uh, it's to um it's anti hierarchy and establishment and privilege um and poor Sid you know he was he was he lost his life to this movement and 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 it's easy to say oh he's a drug addict and that but he's he's a product of his environment and his conditions it's as simple as that and uh yeah i just like the way that somebody can take a song that everyone knows in a certain style, the Frank Sinatra style, and just play around with it for a little bit.
blowing bubble positive conversations with people in their safe spaces, their bubbles around the world. We're broadcast on Otago Access Radio every weekday afternoon at 3 and streamed and podcast on oar.org.nz. You can find us on Facebook and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We have a contribution today from Tahu McKenzie. I'm Senior Man at Otago Polytechnic, Dunedin. With Moira Karatana in Fakatani and sitting beside me, Adrian Woodhouse. We hope you enjoyed the show. This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air.